Hello. <clears throat> Welcome to the Region uh, 2011 Region 2 Convention. My name is Gail. I am a compulsive overeater and anorexic and the moderator for this session. Hi. Um, I'm to read this at the beginning. It's, uh, are you having a good time? We'd like to take advantage of all the things this convention has to offer to help Region 2 carry the message. If you like what you heard and want to take it with you, so you have it all year round, please stop by the recording center tables outside the Houston room. They have CDs and MP3 downloads from all sessions. If you saw Maria's stylish outfits during the play last night, they were all from the Rags to Riches Boutique. Stop by and see what gems you can find. Next door to the boutique is our silent auction. Bid on Dodger tickets, a computer printer, airline tickets, and other wonderful prizes. Also, we have magnets and pins with every program saying known to man. Don't miss it. Visit our hospitality suite to have a quiet place to talk. Find out local about local places to visit and look at somewhere from other inner groups. Finally, we have t-shirts for sale across from the registration desk. Okay. Uh, please help us preserve our cherished tradition of anonymity by refraining from taking pictures in this or any other meeting room. Will everyone who cares to please join me in the serenity prayer? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Uh, let's see. The title of this panel is Anorexic. Anorexics. The format for the session is a reading from our literature, three speakers, and questions from the Ask It basket. As the speakers are sharing, we will pass around a basket with paper and pencils for you to write any questions you may have. Please specify if you are directing your question to a specific speaker. Please be sure to keep the basket moving, even if you have already passed it. As speakers continue to share, members may think of questions that they, that they did not have when the basket first was passed. I will read a selection from page 209 of Voices of Recovery. We admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. As I was preparing my food one day, struggling to get it right, figure it out and control it. I recognize that control is not one of the promises. I am and always will be powerless over my food, my thinking, and my life. All my attempts at control have brought me to the same place over and over again. Loss of control. That's why all my days of dieting, that's what, <clears throat> that's what all my days of dieting had been about. I was always equivalent to a dry drunk. There is a power whom I choose to call God that can restore me to sanity, sobriety, and abstinence. Um, our third speaker isn't here, but I'm going to start with our first speaker, uh, our second speaker, which is Deborah from San Fernando Valley. She'll share with you for 20 minutes. Hi, my name is Deborah. I'm a compulsive overeater, vomiter, and drug addict. Hi. 
and um, uh, I'm actually a walking advertisement for the the thrift shop thing. That's where this came from. That's where this came from. You know, I, I get very cold, so I last night I was actually so cold, and I came with three layers on that I was like, I don't care. I'm going in there and buying anything, and I actually found a really cute sweater. So. Um, and I actually hope the title of this uh, workshop is anorexic and bulimic because I've never been anorexic for like one second in my life, okay? So, um, uh, however, um, I, I do introduce myself as a compulsive overeater, vomiter, and drug addict. And I came to do that, I'm going to start over again, okay? I'm qualified. Uh, I came to this program on May 15, 1981. That means that this year I celebrated 30 years in Overeaters Anonymous. Okay. I do not have 30 years of abstinence. This year I celebrated 21 years of abstinence. So, thank you. And when you do the math on that, you'll see it took me nine years of being here. Not like nine years I came once and then came back the next year. I'm talking about nine years of two, three, seven, nine meetings a week, two trips through an eating disorder unit, I shipped off to a women's long-term rehab facility, okay? So I was here and wasn't getting it. Um, I cannot tell you, I'll try to tell you, what happened on April 23rd, uh, 1990. Um, that has given me the abstinence that I humbly and gratefully live with today. Um, I was thinking this morning, this very morning, how did I get to be a bulimic? Like I didn't wake up one morning and said, gee, I think I'm going to like be a bulimic. And as you hear, I call myself a vomiter. That happened in my very first OA meeting, and it's because the person who was standing next to me introduced herself. Her name was Katrina. And this was in uh, Chicago at that 545 Friday night meeting in the doctor's dining room at Northwestern Hospital, which is still there. And um, and when I'm in Chicago, I visit that meeting, and it always moves me to, to be in that room again and, um, and remember standing next to Katrina. And this person said out loud they were a vomiter. And I was like, hey, I do that too. But that was inside my head. I couldn't say it out loud, okay? I had so much shame around the throwing up. I truly believe as I look back, I couldn't get abstinence those first nine years because I had so much shame around what I was doing that I couldn't talk about that. I was so much a compulsive overeater, huge, enormous binges. And if you were in here at, at the last meeting, which was wonderful, and listened to Michael talk, I ate out of garbage, I ate the frozen food, I ate, I ate all those things too. So I ate as a compulsive overeater, so I totally related. It's just that I threw it up. And so this morning I was like, how did that... Where did that ever start for me? And, and I have an absolutely, like, perfectly clear answer. It's, it was Martha Twombly. Now, who the is Martha Twombly? Martha Twombly lived in the same college dorm as I did. Okay? I learned to bark in the college dorm. And I mean literally learned. Like a whole bunch of us girls, we'd all eat in the one night. You know how we, oh, it hurts so bad. She goes, well, you can just throw it up. I'm like, what? She goes, well, you go in the bathroom and you just stick your finger right and throw I'll show you how to do it. And we went into the bathroom, and she showed me how to do this. I mean, I was actually taught by another human being how to be a barfer. And it wasn't like something that I was like, oh, this is the magic secret. Now I know. It was something that like happened maybe started like once a month, 
like, oh, college kids, you know, and, you know, maybe once every two months. I didn't see it as this great panacea, like, oh, the problem solved, you know. Um, but it but it began to get closer together, okay. Then it was, uh, you know, twice a month, and then it was once a week, and, you know, was, and, and that, that, like, that, that was over a period of time. I can't exactly tell you what it was. Um, my story as a compulsive overeater, um, I've had both ends of this disease, and I talk about being a drug addict because um, that was like the far end of my disease in the sense that my weight range goes everywhere from 100, and I'm five feet tall, 175 to like 102. So I've got both ends of the disease. So I totally qualify as a compulsive overeater. And the drug addict part is that that 102 is from cocaine. It takes your appetite away. You roller skate all day long. You like, you look like, you, look, you know, so that's, that's where, that's my both ends of my disease. Um, I did get sober. I celebrated 28 years sober in Alcoholics Anonymous this year. Sober is a lot easier than, than the food, um, which is, you know, I was here first and then wound up in AA. And um, so, like I said, I'm grateful to be 28 years sober today also. And um, so that's like the, you know, the fact part of my story. Um, I can relate. I sat here in the 100-pounder meeting and I can relate to every single eating behavior that, and every single feeling of self-loathing, um, stretch marks, uh, inability to stop, eating from garbage. I mean, you know, I, my two, like, you know, gutter stories are, you know, I, I got abstinent and spent the first 40 years of my life in Chicago. I'll be 60 years old this year. And um, that's a big number. Um, and uh, my, like, bottom, bottom, it was a New Year's Day. It was 44 below zero. My car had no heat. You remember, the, like, the 24-hour grocery stores? Like, even on things like holidays, they would, like, close on, like, New Year's at midnight and reopen at 6 a.m. I'm sitting in the Dunkin' Donuts across from an AMP at 5.30 in the morning eating coconut-covered donuts at 44 below zero with a car with no heat waiting for the grocery store to open. That's one of my bottoms. And and another one was back in that college dorm. I don't know if you remember those, you know, hostess fold-over, fruit-filled fold-over pies that used to be a quarter in the vending machine. And it was a Sunday, and um, by Sunday night, all the vending machines were empty, and a guy came in on Monday and filled them. And I was taking the crust of somebody else's pie out of an ashtray and wiping off the ashes of the crust. So I qualify as a real gutter bottom compulsive overeater and will be happy to match you story for story at any time. So, you know, I'm trying to give you like 30 years in 20 minutes here. So I moved to California in 1990, and maybe that's one of the reasons it's one of those years with a zero. It's for easy for me to remember my number of abstinence years because I got abstinent then. I moved out here, and I had three years of abstinence. And uh, I moved out here. I didn't know anybody. I had a, a job that I came out here with. Uh, the first thing I did was I went to a meeting, but 
after about a month of being here, I moved on March 20th, I arrived, and after about a month, I had pushed the edges of my abstinence to the point where I threw up. And, and I started to get abstinent right again afterwards, and I was still eating, and I don't know if it was the next day or whatever, I went to go throw up again, and I couldn't. Not I physically couldn't. I stood there and I said, I can't do this one more time. It was like, you know, we always wait for like the fireworks and getting struck abstinent. You know, it was quiet. It was so quiet. I just stood there and it was like this tear trickled down my cheek and I said, just, I can't, I can't do this anymore. And I was full of food, you know, I was completely, you know, anorex or bulimically full of food, which, you know, we eat 10,000 calorie binges. And I kept the food. And my bottom line abstinence today is real simple. It's like, I eat it, I own it. That's it. Whatever I choose to put in my body has to stay there. And if that's three chocolate cakes and two pans of lasagna, then that's what it is. And at the beginning, my abstinence was, I eat it, I own it. And because I, I jokingly like to say at the end, that was like I rented food. You know, it's like I was just buying it to, you know, give it back again. I was renting the food, you know. <laughs> so, so I had to keep the food in. And I did gain some weight. And when I began to not like what I looked like physically, um, I do own vanity as a character defect, but since I own it and I've outed myself, it's not so bad. And I'm like, so I am totally vain. But I started to not like what I looked like. And, and because of that, I began to be willing to make food choices that served both my health and my vanity. Okay. That, that, that served both of those ends. And when I made those food choices, you know, somebody said it again in the last meeting, if I take care of the fork, God takes care of the scale. I like that. I was like, oh, if I take care of the fork, God takes care of the scale. And that, that is um, what happens for me. Um, today I have a food plan, which is separate from my absence. My absence is still, I eat it, I own it. But my, uh, the foods that I choose not to eat today are sugar, flour, and dairy. You know, I don't eat sugar, flour, and dairy, um, which, you know, rules out a, a lot of food groups like pizza, you know. So it's like, you know, a lot of things are immediately ruled, ruled out by that. Now, um, I was just in um, France, and um, I had a wonderful time. And um, there was a little Parmesan cheese on my salad. Am I not abstinent because I don't eat sugar, flour, or dairy? No. Okay? I'm not abstinent if I throw up. If I don't follow my food plan perfectly, I didn't follow my food plan perfectly. But I'm still abstinent. Okay? So there's a separation that I've learned between food plan and abstinence. And do I stick with my food plan? Probably 98% of the time. Maybe even 99% of the time. You know, I'm, I'm one of the ones who's picking the cheese off of the salad. So, um, so.
So at any rate, um, those are some of the parameters of myself. I wanted to read something from the big book, which is um, which is important to me. Leave it at that. Chapter two in the big book is a chapter called There is a Solution. And I don't know about any of you, but I spent my entire life looking for a solution to this eating thing. I was looking in magazines. I was looking in doctor's offices. I was looking at friends. I was looking, I was always looking for the solution, spiritual solutions, whatever. I was always looking for a solution. And I came here to this program, and in this book, it, there's a chapter, and it's called There is a Solution. And I was like, oh, my God, what is it? You know, what, what's the solution? And on the top of page 24, there's a paragraph. And it's in italics, and I like to say that it's in italics because they really want me to read it. And it says here, and I'm just going to read it in its alcoholic form, and it says here, the fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring to, into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. The almost certain consequences that follow taking even a glass of beer do not crowd into the mind to deter us. If these thoughts occur, they are hazy and readily supplanted with the old threadbare idea that this time we shall handle ourselves like other people. I'm a barfer. It doesn't have to be a week or a month ago. It was the binge an hour ago or two hours ago. And I go to the grocery store and I do all my food gathering. And for me, it was like, it's like a chemistry experiment. It's got to be the soft stuff and the hard stuff and the right combination of foods to get them in and out. And to me, you know, one of the, they, one of the here's a sentence that cost me $25,000 in treatment to learn. This is a disease of rituals and practices. I had my binging bathrobe. I had the right foods. I had the dishes that were certain. I laid out the towels on the floor a certain way. Rituals and practices. And the truth is, a recovery is, a disease, is rituals and practices. I still have a bowl I like to eat for my salads. I still have a spoon that I like to use. My friend Allison, she likes really big spoons. Me, I like really teeny spoons. I want to make it last a long time. So it's still a disease of rituals and practices. Even in recovery, I have my rituals and my practices, okay? So, you know, whatever. But, you know, I, I had to shop, you know, in a certain way. And, you know, I'd go home and I'd pull down the shades and I'd turn on the phone machine and I'd turn on the television set and I'd sit on the floor with my little bags in front of me. There were the cashew nuts and the onion rings, you know, I had certain foods. And I eat all the foods, and I throw it up, and two hours later, I'm in the grocery store doing it again. And, you know, and i got to make sure I go to a different checker, because I was having the party that I was buying for, and now I'm, like, buying for the party again. You know, like, so, so I had this disease really badly. And, you know, I used to, to pray. I guess, it, I guess they were real prayers, you know. It was like, you know, about... You know, God, you know, you want, we all want God to strike the food out of our hand, you know. If there's really a God, you won't let me eat this ice cream, you know, that, those kind, kind of prayers. But I wasn't 
willing to do my part. See, I wasn't willing to put the food down. You know, um, when the pain of the eating and the throwing up became greater than the pain of the situations I didn't want to sit through, I stopped eating. You know, I stopped eating over them. And I became willing to cry. I became willing to not look good. You know, there used to be a lot of old-fashioned phrases in this program that you don't hear as much anymore, things like you can't save your ass and your face at the same time. You know, and I became willing to not look good. I became willing to not care what you thought of me. Okay? Because it was really important what you thought of me. And and I had to look good. You know, I had to look good. And when I stopped caring that if I looked good, because I didn't want to die anymore. I didn't want to get fired for jobs anymore. I wanted to get past the second date with somebody in my life. You know, and I couldn't tell you that those are the things I wanted. I probably couldn't even tell you what I wanted. I just didn't want what I had anymore. I just didn't want to have what I had anymore. How, do you know how much time I have left? What I have left? Oh, why? Oh, because the third person. Oh, great! Just so I don't hear me for next year. Okay. Well, thank you, thank you. I'm we're 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 honored to have this extra time. That's a little overwhelming, but okay. Um, another and wow, okay. Because um, I want to talk about the steps. I want to talk about recovery. I don't want to sit around and tell you all my barfing stories or how bad my life was or about all the jobs that I lost or you know all those things that I just said. You know. I, couldn't date and all those things. I couldn't date because it got in the way of my eating. You think I'm kidding, Sam. I'm not kidding. Okay? I have distinct memories of going out with really nice young men in, in my 20s. And I would go, oh, it's getting late. Oh, my gosh. Can I go home? And I would watch out the window as they went away and go downstairs and go out to the grocery store to get food to barf. Okay, to, to, because I didn't, I didn't have the tools for living. You know, can I pin it on things like, oh, my father died on my 15th birthday, and I, you know, and my mother is narcissistic, and so I never knew learned how to have relationships. You know, at a certain point, I can't go and blame other people. I'm an adult. I need to start taking care of myself. I went to therapy and got tools. I came to 12-step program and got tools. You know, I, 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 I could, you know, the blaming will only keep me going back to the food. You know, why, why isn't my life good? You know what? And I became the one who had to start being responsible to make my life good. At least make it better than it was. At a certain point, and this is this is just my story, and it's the only story I've got, so I apologize. I apologize if talking about other programs bugs people. Go talk to your sponsor. Um, <laughs> um, when I was about 
14 or 15 years abstinent. My sponsor, and I've had the same sponsor for a long time, my sponsor said to me, you're clean, you're sober, you're abstinent, your relationships with other human beings stink. You need to go to Al-Anon. She said, you need to go to Al-Anon because Al-Anon is about relationships with other human beings, and that's what you're left with. You know? She said, it's like graduate school. All the substances have gone away, and, and that's what you're left with. And I started to go to Al-Anon, and I began to get tools that helped me with relationships with, with people. And, um, you know, like I said, I used to get fired from jobs a lot because I didn't mind my own business. I was, I was in somebody else. I was always in the boss's business or other people's business or, you know, I wasn't in, in my business, you know. Even with doing the steps, um, I, I still wasn't so good at, at keeping my mouth shut. You know, I laughingly like to say that, that all my problems start with my mouth, what I put in my mouth and what comes out of my mouth, and in more than one way, the things that came out of my mouth. And as I have embraced um, this other program in, in my life, um, my life began to change, and I began to uh, have in my life the other things. Like I just got a contract for my 18th year at the same job, so I'm not getting fired for jobs anymore. And I uh, celebrated my third wedding anniversary, so I learned not only how to date but how to uh, get married. And you know, we've been together. It'll be 11 years this year. So, you know, that got really good and continues to be good. And it is a result of being here and working the steps. For me, I like to say that I came here, and again, in the same sort of time frame that my sponsor said I needed to go to Alan, it was like I worked the first half of the first step, which means, you know, that I was powerless. And then I worked like part of the 12th step where I told all of you that this is a great program and you should do it. But I didn't work any of the stuff in the middle. And what happened for me was that I got to be like an abstinent bitch. Okay? That's all I really was. I was still judgmental, um, arrogant, self-righteous, uh, vainer than I am now. Um, and all the whole, you know, Michael was talking about the wagon of character. Well, it's my wagon of character defects. And I go to a, a, a literature study, a step study, and we go in order. And one time, I speak to my sponsor every Sunday morning at 8.30, Sunday morning. And um, I go to a step study on Saturdays. And we had talked about the 10th step. And... I came home that day and I was all fired about, about the 10th step and how making amends and apologizing and all those things. And I was talking to her and then there was this silence at the other end of the phone, that like pause, like, uh-oh, you know you're going to hear something. You know, I was like, oh. She goes, well, you can, you know, spend all of your life, you know, apologizing and saying you're sorry or you can work step six and seven and change who you are and stop apologizing. And I was like, oh, it was as if I had been hit in the head with a spiritual two by four. I'd never thought about changing who I was. It's like, oh, I'm always going to be this way, you know. 
and you know I'm always going to say the wrong thing and having to apologize. And I heard her say that, and it just stopped me. You know, it just stopped me. It was, and since that time, six and seven have become this like core, this like core of my program, and I continue to try to move toward a fuller vision, realization of what I hope God wants me to be. I know that I have, God, it's even hard to say that you like, you like yourself, you know? So like, you know, I don't, it's like I want to say I don't not like myself anymore. It's like I want to put it in the negative. I can't even say it's like, you know, I become a person that, you know, I'm like I'm getting all hot here trying to say that it's okay being living inside of me today. It's really uncomfortable to say that. Wow. So, <laughs> I didn't expect that. <laughs> so it's – and – um and it's not perfect. You know, it's not a, it's not a perfect thing. And um, character defects continue to show show me like, oh, you need to work on this some more, or you know, you you still need to you know do whatever. I'm trying to be specific, and I'm not coming up with anything real specific here. But um, but working six and seven, you know, it just changed my life. You know, it just changed my life and it has really become this core because I didn't think that I was ever not going to be that person, you know, that little girl who was so broken. She was so broken. She was left out. She was fat. She had a brother who said, you're dumb, you're fat, you're ugly, who would ever want to be with you? And that was a tape that played in my head for 40 years. You're dumb, you're fat, you're ugly, who would ever want to be with you? And I believed that, you know, I believed that. And in addition to being abstinent, I did some work with my rabbi who um, knows the, the 12 steps and he said, you know, how would you work the steps on that? You know, how would you work the steps on that? And, you know, I'm powerless over what my brother said to me when I was 13 years old. I can't make it any different. You know, I can forgive him. This program talks about forgiveness. And I can accept it. And then I need to move on. And that's that being responsible adult. I don't have to be that little girl anymore. I can take care of myself today. I can um, surrender my idea of how my life, how I thought my life was supposed to look and live the life that I am presented with on a daily basis. I have a life today that truly is beyond my wildest dreams. I love the job that I keep getting asked back to. Um, I, I live free of the fear of food. See, I live free of the fear of food. Um, I travel all over the world. Um, I frequently pack my own food to take with me. Um, uh, I have a willingness to go to any length for my abstinence. You know, Michael was talking about that same thing in the other room. What length are you willing to go to? I am willing to go to any length to not eat the foods 
that take me away from hearing God. Okay? There are certain foods that if I eat them, God is gone, and all I am in is this tunnel. And it's like all I can see is the next bite. All I want is the next bite. And I am willing to not eat those foods today. And I remember the very first time, and I've got to close up with this, but the very first time that I was presented with one of those foods, and and for me, it, it was cashew nuts, okay? And I knew if I put one of those in my mouth, it would be like that that guy in the big book who's standing on the bar, banging his hand on the bar, saying, how did I get here again? And I stood. It was one of those places that opened the, the bins, you know, the bins. Everybody knows the bins, right? And I stood in front of that bin, and I started to cry. The tears, I was standing in the store, and the tears were running down my face. And I was like, I wanted to be abstinent more than I wanted to eat that food. And the clarity of that moment is, like, resounding for me. And it is that moment that it's, it's those moments that, that shine for me, and, and I go to them. You know, I talk about my own personal second step. The third step prayer talks about we bear witness to each other, but I get to bear witness in my life, my own life, where God did for me what I could not do for myself. Of my own, I'd be in there, face down, in there. And you know what? I wasn't. If that isn't proof of God working in my life, I don't know what is. Each and every day, I hold on to those experiences of how God works in my life, gives me this grace. See, I truly believe I'm grace. I was talking. My husband is 13 years sober, and I I talked to him, and I said, I don't know why God chose me to have this gift. I never feel worthy of it, and yet I have it. So I have to honor this gift by giving it away. Because I was told if I don't give away what I've so freely been given, I don't get the privilege of keeping it. And I will do anything and go to any length today to keep this gift. Thank you for letting me be here today. Thank you very much, Deborah. Our next speaker is Annie, and she's from San Fernando. And because uh, the third uh, speaker didn't show up, we're adding a little bit of time into each of these speakers. Let's thank them. Hi, my name is Annie. I'm a compulsive overeater, sugar addict, and when I was a lot younger, also an anorectic. So, uh, hi. Um, in fact, I was a little confused why uh, he's not here, but thank you to Ira for asking me to speak because um, I was still uh, an honor, you know, to get asked to participate in this process of recovery. Um, let me start by qualifying. Um, I came to Overgears Anonymous October 21st of 2008, so it's been uh, two years and uh, a little over eight months, and um, I'm a 100-pounder, so I was a little confused why he didn't ask me to speak at the 100-pounder meeting instead of this one, but I also have experience when I was a lot younger with it, some anorexia, and I struggle with the, the, the temptation to do that in my abstinence as well, you know, with that obsession of wanting to get to that dream weight. Anyway, I came in the doors October 21st, 2008. And um, I was had the gift of desperation, and I was ready and to do anything because I was that miserable and that afraid and that much in pain. Um, 
I am maintaining 107 to 110 pound weight loss. Um, and I also don't restrict. Part of uh, my abstinence is that I eat sensibly. I, I nourish my body. Uh, so I eat three times a day and one optional snack. And I usually don't opt for the snack. And I don't eat any recreational sugar and I don't eat white flour products. And I don't have diet sodas because I got obsessed with them. They be that became, an, diet Pepsis were like an addiction for me. So I, I gave up any kind of food or beverage that was, you know, too addictive for me. Um, wow. Um, I was rather hoping uh, that the other speaker would have been here so I could have spoken for less than 20 minutes, not more. So I don't know that I have that much in me. But um, start with what it was like I'll go back to the beginning um, I've had a love hate love relationship and a hate relationship with food and the love relationship started very young I ate uh, I abused food and um, I don't have any experience with bulimia but I do like I said with anorexia and some I have experience with exercise bulimia that I have plenty of experience with um, but as a child, I didn't show the weight. It didn't come on me because I was uh, hyperactive. I was athletic. I was a tomboy. I burned it off. I was in sports. And But I ate my pain. Um, food, and it was all junk food. It was all um, mostly chocolate and anything sugar that I could get my hands on. And um, I ate pain. We, we grew up in a, um, my mom was an alcoholic. Uh, when she, she divorced my dad when I was four. And so we moved to Santa Monica, and um, that's when I started my love relationship with food because I uh, just turned to the food out of pain, out of sure pain, and it was an abusive home. Uh, I had to watch her uh, molest my brother Bill. He was like my hero, and she used to molest him, and I had to see it happen. Um, and uh, she was violent at times, and it, it, it wasn't a healthy uh, upbringing. And so... I didn't have the skills, I didn't have any way of coping with feelings, with just everyday life, with stresses of life. And so, like I said, I turned to the food. Um, first time I started uh, gaining weight was when I basically hit puberty and the eating outweighed the exercise. Um, and I, I dealt with that. And I've also had, a, I identify with quite a bit of what Deborah was talking about, but I identify with vanity and always being so overcome with worrying about how I looked. And uh, that's when, and actually I'm going to talk about it, that when I was uh, in my late teens and early 20s, um, I had a couple serious bouts with anorexia where I went for long periods of time, extended periods of time, were eating nothing but having orange juice and uh, chicken noodle soup. And in the first uh, week or so, I'd have the chicken noodle soup, but then it got to the point where all the noodles came out, so it was really only chicken broth and orange juice. And I got to the point where I was falling down um, out of weakness uh, because I wasn't nourishing my body. And, and, and what is so bizarre about that is I don't know if any of you relate to having that body dysmorphia, but it seems like the times that I struggled with anorexia, that was the times when I felt the fattest. And I've always had this sort of vision of myself as just I see nothing but flab, just as fat, you know, and... and, and I could, I could never get to, there, there is no weight, there's no magical number that, that I believe today, where I'm at today is I believe there's no magical number on, on, on the weight scale that's going to make me perfect or make me feel perfect. It just doesn't exist because even in, in, well into my abstinence, I had this dream weight that I wanted to, you know, get down to and, and it's just, um, I'm at a normal body size and that just has to be good enough. 
I'm learning to deal with today with learning, you know, to accept what is good enough and, and not getting into this whole perfectionism thing. But food for me was something, whether I avoided it or whether I binged on it, it was a way of alleviating pain, making me feel more in control, which the irony there, of course, is I had totally lost control. But for me, it was it was trying to get some kind of control over my life and um, and at least at least over the way I felt. And that's what food did for me is uh, is it took away the pain. It worked, and by the way, it did work for a lot of years. That's probably why I, I, don't, I don't have a story that some people have that they came to OA a lot, you know, decades ago. I didn't. Uh, I didn't get here till I was ready, and, and when I got here, I was ready. Um, but uh, it worked for me for a long time, just escaping into the food, and then I have a long history of up and down, uh, like a roller coaster with my weight, with the binge and restrict, and just even on an every, even though it wasn't total, it wasn't anorexia, it was, I would go, I would restrict my food, for, uh, play these games with food, of restricting my food, and then as long as I could handle it, and then I'd go on a big binge, and I did that a lot, um, or I would just restrict my eating during the day, and not eat during the day, and starve myself, and then eat at night, and when I say eat at night, I mean eat all night, you know, that, that to me was what eating at night meant, it meant pretty much all night till I passed out from a sugar rush and a sugar crash. Um, I don't know, you know, I also, I, I've also been raped a few times and I ate over that and uh, I restricted actually my first experience after that first rape when I was 19. Um, my first experience was actually the anorexia, that first bout that I was telling you about that I had in my late teens with anorexia and I think it was a way of punishing myself. Um, you know, and nothing. I, you know, I, I guess in my mind, I thought that this doesn't happen to to good people. You know, so I must. You know, I just saw myself as so defective, and I've had a lot of self-loathing my entire life. And I don't know how many of you can relate to that, but that's where a lot of the eating and the binging and the restricting came from. Is uh, just trying to cope with the feelings that I had about myself. Um, and I never, never felt good enough. And I put on airs that I did, but I, I really down deep, I didn't. Um, I've uh, not been good in relationships. I've had hard time holding on to jobs. Um, I too have, you know, a lot of times uh, the, the people. In fact, my choices in people. I've been married twice. My first husband, in fact, both were binge buddies, um, and we'd sit and, and eat and, and just instead of dealing with feelings and having a relationship, it was two people sort of coexisting, having a relationship with food together is really what it, the sad fact. Um, and that's happened in both marriages. Um, my marriage today is healing a little bit, but um, he's one of us. He doesn't, I can't really 12-step him, you know, I can't um, make him come to meetings, but he, he's one of us. Um, I seriously don't know if I have a half hour. I'll just I'll be honest with you. I'll just I'll do my best. I'll just tell my story as best I can. Um, one of the prayers that I usually say before talking, and I'm, I'm pretty nervous because I've never spoken at a convention before, so I was uh, pretty nervous about today. Um, but one of the prayers that I usually say is, you know, God, let it be my story as honestly as I can tell it and let it be your message, you know, because that's, that's why it's such an honor, really, to be asked to speak, is that you're really participating in yours and hopefully maybe another person's recovery. And if they can identify, because it's something that was shared at the, the last meeting I just went to before this one, um, 
you know, it's you got to be able to identify and be inspired or have hope. The, the two main things that determine whether you've been in a good meeting or not is whether there's uh, whether you got any real hope, a sense of hope, and whether you can identify. Because if you can't identify, it can. You, it doesn't matter how much hope there is that the hope doesn't apply to you. And if if doesn't matter um, uh, if you can identify, but there's there's no hope, you know, that comes springs forth from from the shares, then it's it's hopeless, you know. And um, so for me, I come to meetings. I need the hope. I need to hear other people's recovery. I need um, I need to hear what it was like for you all and what happened to you and and what, and what you're doing in your lives to uh, to stay abstinent um, because it isn't easy all the time. The physical part of the abstinence, I'll say, it actually is less challenging than in the beginning because in the beginning, October of 08, I didn't think it was possible to give up sugar. I didn't think that that was possible. Um, you know, and I still had a lot of growth to, to undergo in terms of not learning to resist that, that temptation to restrict because I have that in me as well. I have the anorectic in, inside of me as well, especially when I get on my perfectionist thing and I want to get down to that perfect weight, you know. Um, I, uh, when I first got to these meetings, I enjoyed a lot of physical recovery right off the bat. I lost 111 pounds in 11 months, and I was focused on the physical recovery and not so much the, the spiritual. And I still, you know, I came to this program a very sick woman, you know, just needing to get well. And um, I had other, I belong in other programs too. And um, I, but I love this program. This, without this program, I wouldn't be able to be where I'm at today in terms of how I feel about myself, uh, how much better it is today in my dealings with people. Um, it's not perfect, and it's still kind of getting better. It's it's not, I'm not exactly where I want to be, but um, I know that when I got here, I was terrified of dying, and then, but the one thing that kind of terrified me more was maybe I won't die young. Maybe I'll, I'll be like this you know, for a long time, that terrified me even more. And um, I actually attempted suicide when after I'd been abstinent for about nine months. And um, and then again, I came uh, almost a year after that. Again, I came really close to getting to that point again, and basically just checked myself in somewhere and got the help I needed. Um, I didn't get well completely. It wasn't like I didn't have this great story where I got to OA and, and everything became wonderful right away. It didn't. I, I had a lot of issues still to work out because I, I had done a lot of binging and restricting, a lot of using food to manipulate my feelings, to manipulate, basically to numb out, not even just manipulate them, just to stop them and to put the feelings in where I needed them to be, which was down, and, and to not feel. You know, that was usually my goal, was to not feel before I got to program. And then I got to program and I found out, oh my God, you know, at first I thought it was such a great thing that I could feel my feelings. Well, be careful what you pray for, because <laughs> you'll get it. Um, and the thing is, I wasn't really ready, I don't think completely ready to feel all my feelings. And I uh, probably could have afforded going to Alan on and at that point, you know, just another program to help me cope with the feelings. Um, I'd had a really hard time doing that. Um, I spent a lot of years avoiding them at all costs. So um, I've had a lot of anger and a lot of rage, a lot 
directed at myself, a lot of self-loathing. Um, I know this probably sounds really depressing. I'm sorry if I'm depressing you. Um, but that's that was my reality, you know, and that that was that it didn't go away right away. But what the program did is it gave me the tools that I needed and the steps to start working them. I, I made a mistake in working. I, I'm really glad she talked about steps six and seven because those are actually probably the most important steps. I would agree with her on that because the first time round working the steps, step six and seven, I just rushed through them. And that was a mistake because we're dealing with all the character defects, you know, that being entirely ready to have God to remove the character defects and then humbly asking God to remove them. And me, of course, taking it as self-centeredly as I always have, that's one of my biggest character defects is being self-centered to the hilt, um, is t thinking that I have to do something about the character defects. That's a huge mistake. No, it's getting, it's getting out of God's way and being willing to have them removed. And it's, it's God's show. It's not mine. And, and that's the humility is such a big key to step six and seven. And I didn't get that the first time around working those steps. But I did when I realized that I wasn't getting anywhere and I went back to that step and, and really worked it properly. Um, and I, I'm a big advocate of reading the big book and reading OA literature and working the steps because that's how you get better. It's through the steps. Because wh whatever your experience is, whether it's anorexia, bulimia, or compulsive overeating or any combination thereof, if you're using food or the, or the lack thereof, uh, you know, to, to deal with your problems, to get con some sense of, you know, imagined control, to numb out, um, it doesn't work, you know, and that's, and I think uh, it's safe to say in these rooms, if you've made it this far to OA meetings, that you probably get that. You're probably not lost on that, you know, that it doesn't work. Our way just doesn't work when we're out there trying to, you know, in the disease, it doesn't work and, and it never will. And it, it, we can never find happiness uh, that way. It's sort of like, you know, that you know, I like that analogy about the guy pounding his hand on the bar saying, how, to, how the hell did I get here again? I like that because that's all it would take would be to, you know, have a relapse in this program, which would be easier said than done. I, I'm lucky I've got, like I said, two years and a little over eight months um, which isn't really a long time, but um, it feels, i got to tell you, though, it feels like a long time. It feels like a long, hard one, two years and eight months. That's why I'm still counting the months, you know. It's like, um, it really does. It, it, and it feels like a lot has happened and a lot has changed in that time. And um, and I didn't uh, I didn't get here till I was ready. I, w I came in these doors not walking but waddling. I came in with doctors. I, I had had oral uh, uh, surgery in all four quadrants because I had rotted teeth that had to be pulled out, and my gums had to have surgery all because of the, all the sugar that I that I ate. Um, and I had a severe curvature of the spine, and I was borderline diabetic, and I had doctors telling me lose weight or else. So. Um, you know, so for me it was, you know, I, I, I identify with people who claim to be low bottoms. I, I feel very much like a low bottom uh, addict, uh, low bottom person. Um, and like I said, one of the struggles that I have in my abstinence is, um, in, and thankfully I'm abstinent in, in terms of not eating what I'm not supposed to, but I'm also abstinent in terms of I eat healthy. I don't deprive my body of nutrition. 
you know, which there was there was a really big temptation for me when I got into program because I had over 100 pounds to lose and I was losing all that weight and I was losing it real fast and I was getting this ego, I was getting overcome, with, you know, this ego trip about oh, wouldn't it be great if I could weigh 115 pounds? Well, I'm not built to weigh 115 pounds. I'm five six and and I've got muscles and I'm not built to weigh that much. Um, and I'm not built to wear a size zero, you know, so that shouldn't be my goal. So, um, but that's one of the struggles that I've had in my abstinence is is to not go all the way the other direction because that's me. That defines me, the all or nothing thing. Being an addict, it's the all or nothing thing. You know, when I didn't care what I ate when I was on the bench thing, I didn't care. And what's so strange is, I had this 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 dysmorphia thing that that goes on that where when I was binging and gaining all kinds of weight, and like I said, I didn't want, I, when I qualified, I didn't mention that um, at my very top weight, my top recorded weight was at a Weight Watcher meeting. It was 285 pounds. Probably my top estimated weight, um, based on having bigger clothing sizes than when I was 285, um, I probably weighed very close to 300 pounds. So I've run the gamut of my lowest weight of in the 130s to uh, almost 300 pounds. So... Um, I, I've run the gamut, and I've gone on a big roller coaster ride with weight. I couldn't tell you how many pounds I've gained and lost, and gained and lost, and gained and lost. You know, it's just an endless stream of, you know, um, just another part of the roller coaster ride and, until I got found this program. And this program has taken me off the roller coaster. This program has made it possible for me to live without the obsession with food or or the obsession with not eating it, you know, obsessing one way or the other. I don't obsess. I just give my body the nutrition it needs every day. And like I said, I allow myself that uh, optional snack, but most of the time, nine times out of ten, I don't have it. I just have my three square meals a day, and they're, um, I eat healthy. And, um, and I don't worry about it. And it's like it, there's such peace of mind. I can't begin to tell you the peace of mind that I have from with that obsession being lifted. And that's what I was really prone to. I was prone to obsessions, uh, obsessing, whether it's self-obsessing, you know, in my mind about myself. about, And that's another thing that's gotten better since I've been in program is I don't, I don't self-obsess the way I used to. You know, I, I actually, there, I, there are other people in the world I actually care about and talk to today. And I, you know, you know, and it's, uh, when I think back on when I first came into program, how incredibly self-absorbed I was. It, it was really sad. Um, I mean, there, it'd be like if somebody could have come up to me and said, Annie, you do realize there are other people in the world besides you. Yes. Um, you know, that uh, that was the disease, though, you know. And today um, it's not perfect, and it's, it feels like it's a progression. I feel like I'm starting to get better, a little bit better with people. Um, it's not, I'm not completely where I'd like to be, but, um, and, and I have people in my life I care about, um, that, that right there says a lot because before I pushed all that away, there wasn't room in my life for anything but binge and restrict, anything but the food. There was no room in my life for anything but that, and, and I couldn't be around anyone who didn't go along with it. So that hence the two marriages with, with binge buddies, um, which makes it a little awkward now because I'm not binging and, and he is still, but um, I'm dealing with that a day at a time. Um, 
and it's it's hard. It's hard watching someone still very much in the disease and just having to to watch. So I don't know. I really don't know if it's going to work out because it's 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 a hard thing to watch every day. Um, but I'm just so grateful, incredibly grateful. Um, how much time do I have? I'm sorry. A little over eight minutes. Wow. Okay. <laughs> um, well, I don't know. I can take up that much time, but um, maybe I ought to focus also on the steps, like she did, which is, you know, that I, I've at this point worked all 12 steps in this program, and um, the amends were were hard to do. They were hard to get through, and it took me a long time to finally finally finish all of my amends. And one of the things I don't do perfectly, though, and I and I, I, I feel very compelled to be honest. You know, I don't work a, a perfect, rigorous program, and, and it, I, I could use some improvement in terms of step 10. I'm not um, as dutiful with that as I should be. I'm doing it every night. I try to, but I try to, when as things come up, as issues come up, I try to deal with them and admit when I'm wrong and just get it taken care of and not let it build to where it becomes fodder for another inventory, you know. Um, and today, my life is more spiritual. Today, the focus is more uh, something that was very challenging for me, very hard to do, is to meditate. And I don't know about any of you, but I've had one hell of a time sitting still. Like, I always had a hard time sitting still. I was a kind of nervous, fidgety person. And, and I had a hell of a time meditating because... To me, it was just time to sit there and think about crap. I mean, I, I don't know. There might be some really spiritual gurus in this room. I don't know. But not me. Usually my mind would go to the, the, the most ridiculous, absurd, you know, stupid little things I'd think about. And But my, I've noticed that there's been a progression even in my meditation that now it, my mind is a little, little bit quieter. You know, I still think crap. I still have, you know, just stuff that I'll be thinking about that, you know, conversations I've had or... You know, even things I've watched on TV are just just inconsequential, just stupid little stuff that goes through my head. It still does. But I have more time in my meditation time that is just quiet time with God. And um, I find that to be, that is one of the most important aspects of my program today is the prayer and meditation and getting closer to my higher power because it's that relationship that is really making me weller today. I'm, I'm not nearly as sick of a woman as I, I was when I came in these rooms. And that's entirely, almost entirely, I've gotten some outside help, true, but it's almost entirely because of this program and working the steps. And, and I also have found a way to deal with pain. And you know what the definition of normie is? The only, the only thing normie really is, is somebody who doesn't act out on any addiction in order to deal with life on life's terms. That's all a normie is. And I'm given the privilege of sort of being able to behave like a normie, which is very abnormal for me because I'll never be. I will always be that compulsive reader, sugar addict, prone to anorexia person. I will always be that. But I have a reprieve. And what this abstinence does for me is it gives me that daily reprieve where I don't have to live with obsession. I don't have to be obsessed on myself. I don't have to be obsessed with food or the lack thereof or obsessing on what I'm not going to eat or what I'm going to eat. You know, my life, it's, it's more of a life today. 
you know, and it's it's learning to live life on life's terms, learning how to um, roll with the punches a little bit. I was never able to do that before. Okay, thank you. Um, I that's that's the stuff I always ate over or didn't eat over, you know. Um, that's the stuff that um, that always kept me um, blocked from people, from the sunlight, kept me blocked from a relationship with a higher power, you know, and it just kept me blocked. But today, I'm not. I'm more unblocked. Um, I'm more a- open. I'm more approachable. I'm actually someone who is better friend material than I used to be because I really didn't. I really kind of sucked as a friend with people, and that's why I didn't even try. I it get to know somebody up to a point, and just about where my hand is, that would be where I'd stop them and kind of wouldn't get any closer than that, you know. Uh, because I, I always figured it wouldn't, there's no point anyway, because if they got to know me, if they knew the real me, you wouldn't want to be close to me anyway. So, you know, I always wanted to be the first one to kind of push somebody away and instead of waiting for them to push me away. That's kind of how I looked at it. And that's a sad way to live a life. It really is a sad way. I just heard something. I was inspired by something at the last meeting, too, about how um, it's kind of sounded like an interesting statistic that if we're really truly ourselves about, and I'm quoting somebody from this previous meeting, if we're really truly ourselves, about 30% of the people will like us. About 30% won't like us. About 30% don't give a shit. And about 10% don't, they just are clueless. They don't know what they like or don't like. You know, they're just kind of out there. And that sounded so real to life. That sounded like, yeah, that could be, you know, sounds like a realistic statistic. Um, and the thing is, the argument there being, there's no point in doing anything but being yourself because then you're going to attract the wrong 30%. You're going to be attracting the wrong people when you're trying to be someone you're not. And that's what the, one of the big, biggest gifts of this program that Overeaters Anonymous has given me is the ability, the tools, the steps, and the people. It's really about the people, too. And I just love OA. I love the OA meetings, and I love the sharing. And it's, you know, it's given me the tools that I need to be able to accept myself as I am. And when I start to accept myself, I become, I, I act differently around people. And I'm more, in other words, I'm more authentic. I'm more myself with other people. And then, then the people that I attract are the people that I'm supposed to attract. You know, and then I need to not worry about the other 30%. But, you know, the addict here in the head is going to be saying, always uh, obsessing on, well, why doesn't that person like me? Where I've gotten to a point now where, and I don't mean it to sound rude, I truly don't, but who gives a shit why they don't like me? I mean, I'm not, you know, if I'm a normal person, there's going to be a lot of people who are not going to like me, and then some are. And those are the people I'm meant to, to gravitate towards. And that's the good news of this program is, is um, thank you. Uh, I didn't think I could talk this long, really. Um, but anyway, I just, you know, to sum up, I just want to say that, um, well, I've already said it, I'm being redundant, but I love the hell out of this program. And I came in with a gift of desperation, and I was desperate to do anything, and I did what my sponsors told me to do. So... Uh, and I've had a few sponsors, and I've well, the last sponsor I've had, I've had for well over a year, and she's working out really great. And, and it just, um, I'm willing to take direction 
I'm willing to not do things my way because my way, even now, because I don't have enough time where I'm stable enough in my program where I could say, you know, I could do things my way. It would be a healthy way. You know, I still have a tendency to screw things up. So um, I'm willing to do things the way my sponsor directs me to do things. And I'm <clears throat> willing to do take the steps and use the tools that are needed to get out of this, this self-obsession that I, that I still find myself falling back into that. I still have the same tendencies. I still have a tendency to fall back into self-obsession sometimes, but I catch myself. And, and I get out of myself by making calls and by, you know, really engaging this program. And that's, and that's the life-saving message that I guess I would say is that if you're new, keep coming back. And if, if it's in you to do it, reach out. You know, if you can get yourself to do it, reach out to somebody in the meeting. Get some phone numbers, you know, and call. And it might be one of the hardest things you'll have to do, but if you're new, reach out and call, you know, because if you're going to be helping that person as much as they're helping you. I can promise you that. I can guarantee you that because that's, that's been my experience with it. So thank you for having me here, and uh, thank you. God bless. Where's the basket? Uh, can somebody bring it up? Thanks. Now we're going to have questions, and uh, hopefully you listed who you would like to answer it, or if it's either, we'll be either. Thank you. Okay, let's see. Okay, the first question is, once you define your abstinence, how did you free your mind of the obsession over food? This is for either. My mind is not free of the obsession over food. Okay? Uh, I have, I am abstinent, but my, you know, something goes wrong, my first thought is always, I'm hungry. You know, and my sponsor tells me that's because I'm a compulsive overeater, you know. But I don't have to act on it. Just because I have the thought doesn't mean I have to act on it. I have a food plan today, and I was talking with someone right before this meeting that a food plan is like the get-out-of-jail-free card, you know. And some people view this a food plan as like a prison, like, oh, I can't eat. When the truth of the matter is, it's like this freedom. It's like, oh, I had my breakfast, and... Oh, I know what I'm going to have for lunch. So now I just get to have my life in between. So there's like the the food plan is like freedom. And so I'm not freed of the obsession. Like I said, you know, good thing happened. Oh, I'm hungry. Bad thing happened. Oh, I'm hungry. So I am not a compulsive overeater freed of the obsession. I am a compulsive overeater who is freed from the from the desire to hurt myself with food. So I do not pick up foods that will separate me from God. So that's my answer. We have a lot of questions, so we're just going to have one person answer unless it's listed. Okay, the next question. How long did you go before you added a food plan in addition to your abstinence of no purging? Well, I think you shared about that. 
How did you cope with eating all foods and keeping them beforehand? I'm going to leave this question here in case you want to refer to it. Okay. How long did I? Um, let's see. A lot of years. Okay. Um, uh, I, I'm like a really slow learner. I am like the poster child for sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. Really. I mean, when my sponsor asks me to do something, it's like there practically have to be claw marks down the wall and heel. You know, I'm not really good at that. And so how long did I go before I added a food plan? Um, uh, years. Literally, whoever asked this, how long did I go before I added a food plan in addition to my abstinence of no purging? Uh, it was years. Uh, it was years. Um, and how did I cope with eating all foods? Uh, vanity. You know, you, you asked me how I co did I cope with eating all foods and keeping them um, and, and, and not barfing. Uh, I picked a lot of foods that that I wouldn't throw up, you know, which is like vegetables, fruits, things like that. Um, but so the road got narrower really quickly. When I started putting on weight and I didn't like the way I looked, the road got narrower, like like right away, you know. So uh, so I began to pick foods that that wouldn't hurt my body. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, I got the next question. Um, how do you achieve a truly healthy body image? Well, that's that's a good question. And I, I'd like to say I'm not quite there yet. Um, but I, I want to answer this question because that's a really important, that's maybe a question I would have asked if I was out there in the audience. Um, but it is through abstinence and healthy a healthy food plan um, that even though I, I don't, and I should have qualified actually, because I don't obsess on food like I used to, but it's not like I never do, because I should have qualified and said that. I, I struggle with it sometimes too. But the obsession isn't there like it used to be, and that's one of the biggest things is letting go of all that self-obsession and letting go of the perfectionism that says I, I have to have this magical weight that I'm going to get to, and everything's going to be great when I get to that magic number on the scale. But if you can accept that that's not true, this is not, there, there is none. It's just about finding a way to, to love yourself and the way you are right now. And then as you progress in your physical recovery, it'll, it'll get a little bit better. And, but the main thing is, it's, it's, it's about the self-image is about how you feel about yourself. And that the only way to get better on that is to work the steps. I hate to say it, but, you know, I'm, I'm an advocate of working the steps. So as you get better with, you know, your self-esteem gets better and you're starting to love yourself more, that's going to be a byproduct of working the steps. So that's what I've answered on that. This question says, what's your favorite tool of recovery? That one's easy, abstinence. Without abstinence, I don't get anything else. So it, for, me, for me personally, it had to start with abstinence. Okay, how is the relation, or I guess relationship, with your higher power? It's much better than it was. Um, I think I talked a little bit about that, that um, I spend a, a more time prayer, praying and meditating. And you get out of a relationship what you put into it, whether it's with a higher power or with a person. So if you think of it that way, just like in any relationship that you would have with a person, you're not going to get much out of it if you don't put a lot of time into it. So first thing I'd say is, 
set aside some time to be with your higher power, to be alone and to pray and meditate, and, and that will come. Your relationship with your higher power will come, especially as you use other tools like writing and getting a lot of your feelings out and maybe even writing letters to your higher power. You know, it's, it'd be the same way you would with a person. You just treat it, treat your higher power like a person that you want to get to know. Um, this one says, how do you gauge healthy exercise versus exercise bulimia? Does exercise set off um, I, thinking like I can eat more? Um, I'm not an exercise bulimic. Um, I do exercise uh, regularly. I have been doing yoga for over 20 years. Um, I've gotten older, and um, because of that and, and, um, and bone density and osteoporosis, my gynecologists make me do weight training. And since I can never get myself to do it, I've actually started working with a trainer to do weight training. And then I also do the, um, the elliptical trainer a couple times a week. So I'm really not an exercise bulimic. Sometimes I actually have to, like, say, you know, you really need to go. I kind of have to force myself. I'm always glad that I've done it, but I'm, I'm never, I, I didn't have that. And it doesn't, I don't, I just, I'm not one of those people who think that I can eat more because of exercise. Because partly, okay, I'm a math teacher. I've done the math. You have to be like on a treadmill for six hours to work off a donut. It just doesn't work. So, you know, it just says the math on that doesn't work. Um, please help me, th we're done with the workshop, uh, please help me thank the speakers for sharing their experience, strength, and hope. It's, it is now time to close this session. Please join me in a moment of silence followed by the third step prayer. If your uh, questions didn't get answered, catch somebody after the meeting or at one of the other workshops and you'll probably get your answer. Thank you.